and welcome back to my Love Letter Time Machine, where we are unfolding the Victorian love story contained in the love letters of two ordinary people from Sheffield, Yorkshire, Fred Shepherd and Janie Warburton. I'm Ingrid Birchall Hughes, and I just happen to be their great-great-granddaughter. And this time, we'll be taking a look at the rest of Fred's holiday, and then learning about the tragedy that befell Jane's sister, Emma. Please be aware that the second part of this episode contains descriptions of domestic violence. So you may remember from our last episode that Fred has gone to Bridlington on his work's Wakes Week or Factory Fortnight holiday, as it was sometimes known, and has been sending entertaining letters back to Janie in Hansworth. Here's our next reply. Hansworth, Sunday afternoon, August 17th, 79. My dearest Fred... I wish I was at Bridlington. The time goes so slowly here. I think we have had 28 days in this week. There is a trip to Bridlington from Attercliffe on Wednesday for the day. I think I shall come. It is quite possible I may have the pleasure of seeing you there. The train leaves Attercliffe at 6.30. Fancy getting up at that unreasonable hour. It is the Woodhouse feast tomorrow. I'm going to Miss Worthy's to dinner. There is a grand cricket match and gala in the evening. It will be rather slow, but we can go to the feast if we don't like the match and have a ride in the roundabouts, or we can have some hot pots. I'm afraid the flavour of them won't be as good as those we had at Attercliffe Feast. Mr Parr and Miss Bray have gone to the parish church, Sheffield, tonight. They wanted me to go with them, but I declined. To be the third person, it, it is awkward. But I'm going by myself presently to take this letter, as I want you to get it tomorrow, so that you can write per return and tell me whether you would like me to come or no, to Bridlington, but perhaps you have made other appointments for that day. This letter is rather short, but I will give you more agony in the next. My dearest Fred, I love you still more than ever. Good night, your darling Janie. Bridlington, Monday morning, 8.50am. My darling Janie, I can only say a few words in reply to yours, as we are about to set off for Scarborough at 9.10 and have not had any breakfast yet. You cannot give me greater pleasure than by coming here. I have not made other appointments. Will John come with you or shall you come alone? It must be a dreadful bore to you. My darling, I shall look forward anxiously for your coming and will meet the train. I'm in a hurry, but still remain your faithful lover, Fred. It's extremely rare to have both sides of a correspondence in a collection of letters. And I know I'm really fortunate to have this, but that still leaves frustrating gaps in the narrative that I just have to fill with my imagination. It was after reading that exchange that I realised that my great-great-grandparents' story was getting under my skin. I'm so lucky to have Fred's diary for this year. I found myself flipping through it, whispering under my breath, did she go? Did she go? Hoping that Fred had recorded what happened next. And I almost cheered when I found that he had. Monday, August the 18th. Went to Scarborough. Spent the day there. Missed the train at night. So walked to Filey eight miles and slept there. Tuesday, August the 19th. Came back to Bridlington from Filey. Wednesday, August the 20th. 
Janie came to Bridlington to see me. I think she must love me a good deal to give herself so much trouble. However, I spent a most enjoyable day with her. Bought her a locket. I noticed while I was reading old newspapers for this time that they came in a kind of wrapper that was covered in adverts for sales and excursions. So it must have been in one of these that Jane found the information for the special train to Bridlington. Jane is obviously missing Fred a great deal. For a 19-year-old slightly sheltered woman, deciding to leap on a train and make the 90-ish mile journey from Attercliffe to Bridlington isn't just popping over to see you, is it? She's got to get her mother's permission to agree in the first place and then maybe persuade her brother John to go with her. We don't know if John did go, but given that she's not allowed to walk the two miles back up the hill from Darnall on her own, I'm finding it hard to imagine that she went on her own. Perhaps he just saw her to the station if she was going to be met at the other end. But the fact that she went speaks to me of determination in her character, as well as a spontaneity, and indicative of someone who takes up opportunities when they present themselves. A wonderful foil for Fred's more considered approach to life. When Fred wrote in his diary, I think she must love me a good deal to give herself so much trouble. It is as if up until now, he couldn't quite believe that she really did love him. I'm so glad they had such a lovely day. I think it must have been instrumental in cementing their relationship into a serious one. It was during the week that Fred was in Bridlington that on the morning of August the 14th, Emma, Jane's sister, woke to discover that her affairs, or rather the affairs of the husband who had abandoned her, had been splashed across the newspapers. I promised in a previous podcast that Emma deserved to have her own story told. So that I can explain more, we need to go back a few years. I mentioned earlier This part of the episode contains descriptions of domestic violence. At some point in either 1876 or 1877, my great-great-grandmother, Jane Warburton, then 16 years old, would have discovered that marriages were not always happy. In fact, they could be ruinous, particularly for a woman. Emma had married John George Herod in October of 1870. She was 18 years old and three months pregnant. Herod, from Nottinghamshire, was the son of a farmer and had come to Hansworth to find work as a joiner. Given that Emma's father was a joiner before he became a publican, and her brother William still worked as a joiner, in a small village like Hansworth, their paths would have crossed soon enough. Perhaps Herod was even employed by the family. Herod was a smooth talker and a bit of a charmer. We don't know if he had already asked Emma to marry him, but events later in his life suggest that he had form and wasn't above promising marriage to take advantage of a young woman. I'm inferring Emma's attitude to sex from Jane's later behaviour, that before marriage it was kind of okay-ish as long as a promise of marriage had been made. However their relationship came about, the marriage was speedily arranged 
and their first child, Morris, was born the following March. The 1871 census records them all living with Emma's parents in the Cross Keys at Hansworth, but later Herod was earning enough to set up home. For a time, things went well. Edith Lillian, known in the family as Lucy, was born in the early summer of 1872, and then another son, Arthur James, arrived in 1874. A couple of years later, Jane would have gone on one of her many visits to her older sister Emma, perhaps to assist with the dressmaking or to help with the children, who she loved dearly. Upon walking through the door, Jane would have found the house in some disarray, her little nephews and niece subdued, and her sister having suffered a severe blow to the head that had given her two great bruised eyes. If Jane hadn't known things were bad before, she did now. The assailant was Emma's husband, John George Herod. We don't know if Herod was at home when Jane found her sister in that condition. Did Jane rage at him, tell him to leave them so she could care for Emma? Or was she terrified for Emma, for the children, for herself? Did she run to get William, their dependable older brother? Was it then Emma told Jane about all the attacks, about being punched in the back for not getting dinner ready, about being beaten viciously with a stick after asking why he was late home? Or did Jane and her family already know, and this was just the latest trauma in a marriage that had turned far more than sour? Some unknown time after the arrival of little Arthur, John George Herod became a heavy drinker and developed a gambling habit. It also seemed to be a contributory factor in him losing his job. I had wondered if he had been in the habit of being cruel to his wife, but Emma herself reported later that the marriage had started well, but Herod's behaviour had grown in savagery during this period. By 1877, John George Herod's gambling was so out of hand that an execution was put upon the house and all the furniture was sold. On the day the furniture went, so did he. He packed up all his clothes and left, without letting Emma or anyone else know where he was going or if he was ever coming back. The sale was most likely handled by William, while Emma stayed away from such a painful occasion and it probably fell to Jane to take care of the children and distract them from all the unpleasant practicalities. Emma, presumably in some distress, with a six-year-old, a four-year-old and a three-year-old, moved back into the family home, the Cross Keys, back to the safety of her mother and father, Maria and James, but also back to sharing a home with her sister Jane and her other brother, also called John. As much as I want to imagine William and her brother John perhaps taking Herod to one side for a quiet chat... I can't possibly know if they ever did. But given Herod's disappearing act, while he may have been escaping his gambling debts, I should imagine it was in part to avoid a possible confrontation with the Warburtons heading his way. For Emma, she must have felt relief, but also great sadness and possibly even shame. It was a local scandal, and by the standards of the day, while she would have been viewed with some sympathy, tongues would have wagged. Domestic violence today still carries with it a significant amount of victim blaming, but it was much worse then. Being permitted to discipline your wife with a stick no thicker than your thumb was a myth, but it was believed by many at the time to be legal. 
at home at least, her mother, Maria, treated Emma with a huge amount of tenderness and concern. However, in years to come, as Emma developed her own problem with drink, no doubt as some kind of self-medication, this care from Maria became a kind of enabling, and Emma's victimhood became entrenched within the family dynamic. Dependent on her father, with no way of making her own way in the world, and unable to remarry, no doubt Emma felt trapped and helpless. I grew up hearing from my mother the family stories of Aunt Emma, how she was a drunk, how the family believed it was due to the sight of the gravestones out of a bedroom window that had driven her to the consolation of the bottle. While I was first reading the letters and coming across accounts of Emma's intoxicated behaviour, I found it funny and a little salacious. Now that I have recently found exactly what happened to Emma, I realised she was more sinned against than sinner. Emma often lashed out with a sharp tongue. I think everyone got the benefit of Emma's opinions, but it was Jane that was nearest and so she bore the brunt and the rest of the family let Emma get away with that because of what had happened. Poor Jane. Poor Emma. I think I now also see that the Warburton's concern about Fred courting Jane was not just about snobbery, it was also in part protectiveness. Emma had fallen for someone outside their set and it had gone wrong in the worst possible way. They were understandably keen that Jane would not meet a similar fate. In 1878, the UK Matrimonial Causes Act made it possible for women in the UK to seek legal separation from an abusive husband. However, this would have given Emma little comfort, given that she had no idea where John George Herod was. Until, that is, the morning of the 14th of August 1879, and Emma opened the Sheffield Daily Telegraph to the following article. The headline reads, Alleged Jewellery Robbery by a Sheffield Man. Yesterday, at the Southport Petty Sessions, a well-dressed young man named John George Herod, alias Arthur Walton, was brought up in custody on the charge of stealing from the Shakespeare Hotel Southport in December last three gold watches, three gold chains, one gold necklet, attached to a gold locket, the property of the proprietress and her daughter, Mrs. and Miss Kershaw. To the chains were attached several gold pendants. The prisoner for some time past has been residing in the town, and his general quiet and gentlemanly demeanour had given him access to rooms in several of the hotels which the public were not allowed to enter. During the hearing of the case it transpired that the prisoner belonged to Sheffield, that he was a joiner and a married man with a family, the latter residing in Sheffield with their mother. He had been courting a young woman in Southport on one of the watches he gave to her as a present, and thus the theft was brought home to him. This young woman having just given birth to a child, the case could not be proceeded with, and the prisoner had nothing to say against a remand. He had circulated in the town the rumour that he had an income of about £6 a week. It is thought that other charges of hotel robberies in Southport will be brought against him. We know that Emma learned of this in the newspaper because she stated it in a court of law at a later date that this was the first she had heard of Herod's whereabouts since his desertion. 
Jane's letters make no mention of anything untoward happening, but if she had known, she might have decided to only share this news with Fred when she met up with him face to face. My family would have got the full measure of John George Herod's duplicity when he was charged, and we have a report from this from the Sheffield Independent on the 30th of August 1879. The alleged robbery by a Sheffield man at Southport. Yesterday, at the Southport Petty Sessions, John George Herod, alias Arthur Walton, was again brought before the bench on the charge of stealing gold watches and chains from the Shakespeare Hotel, Southport, the property of the proprietress, Mrs Kershaw, her daughter and her niece. The prisoner, who is a young man, has for some time resided in Southport and ostensibly occupied a good position, so much so that not the slightest notice was taken of his movements. On the 21st of December last, he spent a great portion of the day at the Shakespeare Hotel, and after he had left, the watches, chain and necklet were missing. Information was given to the police, and it was discovered that although he was a married man and the father of three children, all of whom, with their mother, were residing at Sheffield, to which place the prisoner also belongs, he had for two years been courting a young lady in Southport, to whom he had handed one of the missing watches. This young lady had money in the Preston Bank, and from her he has succeeded in obtaining £44. He told her to put the watch and chain out of the way and forbade her from ever wearing them. He also led her to suppose that he had a lot of money and told her that he intended marrying her. The case had been adjourned several times in consequence of her not being able to attend, she having given birth to a child of which the prisoner was the father. Another watch and chain he left in about the last week of February with a Mr Bevan, proprietor of the Grapes Hotel, Vernon Street, out of Dale Street, Liverpool, who lent him two pounds on them, the prisoner stating that he must have that amount as he was at the time hard up. Mr Bevan brought the watch and chain to Southport when it was identified, in consequence of having seen a report of the alleged robbery in the newspapers. The prisoner also told the young lady that he had lost a lot of money with betting, and that he bought the articles when he had plenty of money. The defence was that the prisoner had bought the watches from some betting men in Liverpool, and that he had no knowledge whatever of the robbery until he was charged with it. After a short consultation, he was committed to take his trial at the sessions. John George Harrod is revealed in this newspaper report to be not only a thief, but someone who habitually sees women as a means to an end. After leaving Emma and his three children with absolutely nothing but the clothes they stood up in, he spends the next couple of years thieving, gambling and ruining the life of another young woman. I am quite surprised as to the amount of outrage I feel. I'm not one for casting people as villains, but John George Herod is certainly auditioning hard for the role. So in this way, having no idea where he had gone, Emma and the rest of the family find out that they now have a felon in the ranks and that he committed adultery and fathered a child. As the distressing details were discovered, I wonder if the family, and Emma in particular, found some consolation in realising that Herod was now revealed to everyone as untrustworthy, to an alarming degree. Perhaps Emma would now be seen with more sympathy.
James Warburton, Jane and Emma's father, as well as being a publican, was also the local constable in Hansworth. He would have had some connections, and now that he knew the whereabouts of Herod, he started making inquiries into how Emma could be rid of him. Glimpses into James' character from Jane's later letters show James Warburton to be someone who utterly adored his children and that he regretted what had happened to Emma deeply. It was after Herod came to light in this and the previous newspaper report that I believe James and the rest of the family came up with a plan to try and rescue his eldest daughter. We'll leave it there for now. Thanks for listening to my love letter time machine. We'll be back next time when we take a look behind the scenes at the steel mill where Fred worked and speculate on the significance of swapping selfies Victorian style. In the meantime, you can follow me sharing excerpts of Fred and Janie's letters on Instagram at my love letter time machine, all one word. Take care and have a great week. <laughs>